1: Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only program from RNZ Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. New Zealand rugby's had to farewell three legends of the game this week. The sudden death of the game's first truly global superstar, Jonah Lomu. There's been the retirement of a player regarded by many as the greatest of all time, Richie McCaw. And there's also been the departure overseas of the brilliant Dan Carter. In Extra Time, we look back over a major week of upheaval for the sport. After 148 tests in the All Black jersey, Richie McCaw is hanging up his boots. It hardly comes as a surprise as the All Black skipper had hinted from the start of the year that this was likely to be his last on the international stage. He exits having led the All Blacks to two World Cup victories and is the most capped international player in the sport's history. Morning Report's Susie Ferguson asks him if he felt sad
2: that his rugby career was now over. I wouldn't say sad, like uh, there's no doubt there's going to be a bit of a hole left, um, but I'm also excited about uh, what's ahead, um, so you know, you get to the end of the chapter, you open a new one, and I think that's the way I feel, so there's no doubt when the boys go out and play, you know, next year, how I'm going to be, feel a little bit of, wish I was out there, but I also know it's the right thing to, the right time to move on.
3: Did you have a sense at all of when you were going to go, I mean, everyone kept asking you, how did you get to that point where you realised, yep, time's now?
2: look I, I made no secret all year that it was a possibility and probably a strong possibility but in a funny sort of way I didn't want to close the door completely if I come out and said, yep, well, I'm definitely retiring then what happens if I'd changed my mind or what happens if uh, you know I'd started acting differently or playing you, know, you know all those little things that it was probably more just to keep myself uh, you know uh, sorted but uh, like when that final game came around and the final whistle went I like I knew that it was, that was going to be it. Um,
3: was that the moment where you thought, I'm well, done? I mean, you said earlier you, you pulled the jersey off and that was the last time.
2: Yeah, well, look, I, uh, I didn't allow myself to think past that final whistle. I just was, any time my thoughts went past, I was like, no, that's not going to help me. And uh, the final whistle went, and before the trophies handed out, I was like, oh, wow, this is probably it. But then I was like, no, I'm going to enjoy this. And there was that little moment when I, the jersey off I, I sat there and thought this is the last time I'm going to be wearing a whole black jersey that, yeah, and playing in it and playing in it and then I was like well what better way to finish and then I want to enjoy the next week and, and do that and then make sure when I get home that I that it was the right thing and you know I've had no sort of uh, like sitting here now there's no sort of underlying thing oh maybe I've, have I got this right I, I know I've got it right.
3: When you actually told your family, your partner, what did they say?
2: Oh, I think my parents were probably quite happy, to be honest, because they uh, obviously ride the emotions uh, just as hard as uh, we do as a player. So I'm not as happy I've got to the end in one piece. But but in saying that, they'll support whatever, you know, they've been the greatest supporters. So, um, And same with Gemma. She's uh, Like, I've talked to her a lot about it over this year, you know, about, um, you know, right time and you know we always debate you know what would happen if you tried to carry on and it was never really something uh that we talked too seriously about so yeah again like my folks you know just supportive
3: so the next thing is helicopters do you think you've chosen something purposefully somehow that is kind of all about the adrenaline still
2: (laughs) oh there's no doubt that uh you know when I say it, it, hasn't just been like, oh, look through the menu and that'll do. I, like, I've obviously uh, been interested in aviation and in 2012 when I started to fly helicopters. I, I realised that they pretty cool, the job that those guys did. And, uh, you know, I thought that'd be a pretty cool thing to do. So um, it hasn't just come around, but there's no doubt that going to work or... You know, I've been going out there fairly regularly when I've had time uh, free. Uh, I've loved, first of all, hanging out with those guys because they're passionate about it, and secondly, uh, the flying. You know, Some of the things they do, uh, I just think that's pretty cool. So uh, to be able to get a piece of that, uh, I'm pretty lucky.
3: Achieving so much as well in your rugby career, was there a point where you just kind of thought, wake up in the morning and you think, oh, I'm getting too old for this.
2: Yeah, getting past uh, it. Oh, I don't know about that. not I actually felt like I, uh, you know, physically it was in pretty good shape. Like, I was it close to my uh, best in terms of some of the physical stuff we get tested on uh, just right at the end. So it's more the mental side. And I think there's a couple of times, you know, especially in the World Cup too, you know, going to knock out rugby, the, the pressure's on to get it dead right, and, and that's hard work. And that's the bit that I, I remember sort of just thought I'll bang that away, that memory that whenever I think I wish I was playing, you just remember back what it takes to do that and that's the bit that I've perhaps tired, got a bit tired of and and then if you start to let that, that affect you it's going to affect how you train and then obviously how you play so um, that's when I knew that this is the right thing to do.
3: Does it also get tiring dealing, I suppose, with the expectation with the fame, for want of a better word, you go out, you just want to have a quiet meal, someone comes up to you and, you know, they've got their, their mum on the phone and they want to talk to you immediately and <laughs> is that just too intrusive?
2: Look, I... Uh, oh there's, there's no doubt at times it gets a bit frustrating, but you know we live in a country of people that leave you alone f- fairly much, like we can live pretty normal lives you know I, around my suburb at home, you know people are good, you can get down to the supermarket, no one even gives you a second look, which is really awesome, and we're lucky like that and yeah the reality is it's not going to change immediately um so trying to think you'll just walk around anonymously uh straight away if I start to think that then you're going to be disappointed I suggest um but it's not. Not too bad and uh, so but but there's no doubt that it'll, it'll wane a bit and, and actually been able to go, you know, to places where rugby's not so well known. Um, you know, I did that back in twenty thirteen, that was really refreshing and you know, there's opportunities to do that.
3: Having been so well known for so long though, is it gonna be kinda of hard when people stop looking at you in the streets?
2: Well I think everyone's got a bit of an ego that likes to be padded in it, but uh like uh, that's not what uh you know that, that's an a thing that, you know, as a rugby player you accept and, and perhaps you, you get a bit of joy out of. There's no doubt that everyone enjoys a pat on the back and stuff. But um, you know Yeah, whatever happens down it was whatever happens. And the one thing you always gotta realise and some of the guys that are, you know have retired have told me, you know, no matter who you are, what you did, someone will always come along and, and fill in and do well and be better or whatever. And you've just got to accept that and be happy for, for the next people to do that. And that's the way I, I see it. I want the team to keep playing well and you know whoever uh, ends up being captain and playing number seven they do the job well because uh, that's what I want to see.
3: New Zealand has seen if you like the greatness for an awfully long time do you think there's almost an expectation partly because of the profile that New Zealand will somehow keep demanding greatness from you?
2: (laughs) Well I don't know about that but you know it's not as though it's a put on thing as to how I, I live and what I do like the way people see is, is just the way I am, I suppose. So uh, it's not as I'm going to go and all of a sudden do uh, things that are completely different to the way I've been living now. Um, so yeah, whatever people expect, I, I, like I don't know. But uh, the one thing you always say, and, and you see it, you know, whether you're a current All Black or a former one, you're always classified as an All Black, and that's a great thing. But that's a, I guess, a responsibility you're always going to have.
3: On the greatness question if you're offered a knighthood, are you going to accept it
2: oh look I, I've always said I would be uncomfortable at this age to have the title sir so I, I, I don't well look, you
3: said that when you were playing yeah, not
2: playing anymore I, look to be honest I put a lot of thought into it I, I guess I don't haven't really enjoyed it being debated you know around the place and stuff um look I'm not sure but um look I, I appreciate you know those awards are given to people for what you do and that, that's great but um you know well all to see, but it, it's always felt a little uncomfortable. So whether it's, something happens, I'm not sure.
3: So, what do you think you're going to miss most about going from being a, a current All Black to a former All Black?
2: Look, I, there's probably a couple of things. One is definitely that thrill of running out onto the stadium with eighty odd thousand. Like that, that really uh, excites me, you know, and I really love, love that so you'll miss that and I think I, the other the other side of it that I'll miss is um, sitting in the changing room after a game when you've gone through a battle with your your mates that you have a lot of trust and respect and you've all done your thing and you've succeeded or got through a tight spot or whatever and you're sitting there you don't have to say a lot you just know and that feeling uh, and I don't know you know it's it's one of those real happy feelings that you have um, that's what I'll miss because that's, that's the bit you crave and um you know, whether you ever replace that, I don't know. But you be careful you don't try and replace that because it, it's pretty unique. And uh, you know, I'm just lucky to have done it for, you know, you've got to experience that so often.
3: Will it be quite not nice not having to go to training all the time?
2: It'd Be quite nice. Uh, yeah, it will be. I, I think. But I, look, I'm, it's not as I'm going to do nothing. Like I, I'm someone who loves keeping fit and getting out and doing things. So it'd be just nice not having to go, I've got to do this session right now for Saturday. I can just think, oh well today I won't do it. But in a funny sort of way. Like even since I've been home I've been there's buggeral days gone past where I haven't done something to, you know, keep keep feeling good.
3: Um you have a bit more time on your hands, perhaps, for some of the time. Um you might have some more time for social media which you've just got on
2: <laughs> Yeah, well I've uh I've come around to that one. Um yeah, you know, I've been copped with a fair bit of stick from my mates that's, you know, said, oh, you said you never would. I was like, well, at least I can change my mind. But, um, look, I... Uh, yeah. Is it kind it, of
3: good now that you're doing it? you quite enjoy well, it? Well, it's
2: not, it's not a bad thing. It's not this big beast that I thought. And I think, you know, I'm only on Facebook, but, uh, look, it's a very powerful tool to, you know, be able to communicate with people. And, and reality is, perhaps I should have embraced it a bit earlier, but we've got there now. So, look, um, yeah, in going forward, when you and probably you know uh, when you're not so much uh, in the in the spotlight with uh, playing um, yeah, there's it's a good chance to be able to communicate with people so
3: so looking forward to the anonymity beginning to come in getting to go to a bar without having everyone looking at you
2: yeah well it's going to take a wee while for that I, I suppose but um, yeah look at it, not having to, the big thing that I'm going to enjoy is not having to worry about you know whether it's your day off or whether it, everything you did was about making sure you're right for Saturday. Whereas, even I've found the last couple of weeks where I went around to someone's place and they said, would you like a wine? You know, and normally I'd have to think twice about it. Not that I wouldn't, but i go, oh, can I? Whereas now, I was like, of course, yeah, i love one. And uh, you're not having to worry about that, which is uh, something I'm looking forward to. Do
3: you think you're ever going to need to buy a drink again in a pub?
2: Oh, I don't know. I hope not. <laughs> um, oh, I'm quite happy to, to buy a drink in a pub, but... Um, Have you bought one since you came back? I haven't actually been to a pub since I've been back, to be honest, so uh, I need to go and test that one out. (laughs) That's Richie McCaw talking to Susie Ferguson.
1: One of Richie McCaw's nicknames among his teammates is GOAT, an acronym for greatest of all time. He's certainly been labelled that in many rugby quarters, including by all-black icon Sir Colin Meads, who told Joe Porter he's happy to hand over the mantle.
4: He's taken it over already, so it doesn't worry me at all. It, it couldn't happen to, you know, he's such a great guy, and uh, you to come second to Richie is still a pretty good honour. I was never a great captain. Uh, I must get that clear. Uh, I played under some great captains, and Sir Wilson Winray and Sir Brian Lahore, great, great captains, but uh, Richie... Like like the other captains, they develop into it, and the further the game's gone, the better captain he's become, and he's just a great, great leader and uh, you know he's our, he, he's the best, sad to see him go
5: and I guess in, in this day and age, the day of social media and and you know lack of privacy and celebrity, he really is almost a throwback in a way to someone that really doesn't seek the spotlight despite his uh, fame that's become of how good he is at rugby.
4: Oh, well, I think that's what makes him great, you know, he carries off all his duties and his position, but he's still Richie McCaw and uh, behind it all quite a shy guy.
5: And he's obviously going to leave a massive hole in terms of leadership within the All Blacks camp, regardless of who they have to replace him.
4: Oh, well, there always is, you know, after a great captain like that pulls out, it's going to be hard for the next one, but... uh, They've got other leadership qualities in the team, and uh, you know they'll they'll develop a captain over the next few years.
5: Steve Hansen has described Richie McCaw as the greatest All Black of all time, followed closely second by Dan Carter. Is is that the way you view it? Is Richie our best ever All Black? Oh, I think
4: he he certainly has to be. <laughs> you know, just his record tells us that, and uh, you can't get a greater honour for the man. It's he's just such a great.
1: Sir Colin Meads talking to Joe Porter. Rugby's first truly global superstar, Jonah Lomu, died suddenly on Wednesday at his home in Auckland at the age of 40. Lomu, who suffered from a rare kidney disease for the past 20 years, died unexpectedly just hours after returning home from attending the Rugby World Cup in England. He played 63 tests and scored 37 tries in those matches, having made his debut in 1994 against France. Wide to Lomu. he's got the bounce, he's handed off his opposite. Alamu, oh, oh. Jonah Lomu was rugby's first truly global superstar, and that try at the 1995 World Cup, when he quite literally ran over the top of England fullback Mike Catt, heralded his arrival on the world stage. He starred at the national sevens tournament in 1993, catching the eye of then All Blacks coach Laurie Maines.
6: Bill Curtin and I were watching the sevens. And Jonah was playing and he was just simply sensational and we looked at each other and said, "Uh, what can we do with this kid? Um, This guy could be a phenomenon.
1: In 1994, Lomu made his test debut against France, becoming the youngest all-black ever. Although it was an inauspicious start as his defence and positional play was found wanting. Not surprising given he'd played much of his rugby as a loose forward. But he learnt quickly and he was part of Laurie Maines' 1995 World Cup squad, with the All Blacks even changing their game plan to suit him.
6: He was phenomenally fast. Now on top of that, he had a sidestep of around about three metres. So if he had space, he was basically impossible to mark. So by 1995, we decided that we need to change our tactics in the way we played rugby and we need to be able to create space for John Ulamu.
1: The first signs of John Ulamu's health problems, though, emerged in 1996. His kidney condition meant that he missed most of the 1997 domestic season, although he returned for the All Blacks end-of-year tour of Wales, England and Ireland. He played at the 1999 Rugby World Cup and remained in the All Blacks squad up until 2002, despite his failing health. He eventually needed a kidney transplant in 2004. In 2006, he spoke of how reinvigorated he felt after the transplant.
7: Before, I used to really, really struggle in games. A lot of people didn't see that part because they never knew about it. But um, now with the transplant that I've had, um, in terms of training, I don't struggle at trainings anymore as much as I used to.
1: Joan Ulamu was awaiting yet another kidney transplant when he passed away. Tana Umanga was a good friend and an All Black and Hurricanes teammate. And he says the last time he spoke to Lomu was just before
2: this year's World Cup. As we do, we don't speak a lot in terms of words. So there's a lot of you know acknowledgements and head nods and things like that. There's never been a Jonah Lomu. Has there? Everyone's tried to manufacture one, try to put forwards out into the backs, and try to put someone on the wing that had the same size. But there's no one like him.
1: You know, to be honest, there probably ne- they never will be. The former All Blacks midfielder Alama Iremia made his test debut in 1994, the same year as Lomu.
0: Off the field
4: he's a very gentle person and very genuine islander and uh, tough upbringing. And for me it's his humour and his uh, humility as, a, as an island boy that I'll miss the most.
1: The former All Blacks captain Graham Murray coached Lomu at the Hurricanes and says he transcended the game.
6: Jonah was more than a great all back I think in terms of the the game of rugby. He was an absolute icon. Anywhere you go in the world, I think Jonah actually was bigger. Not not a not a thing you'd say about a lot of people, he's actually bigger than the game and and known outside of the game.
1: Steve Chew, the chief executive of New Zealand rugby, believes Lomouk was a major influence in the game, becoming professional.
2: His bursting onto the international stage took the game to another level and was probably an important spark for the game getting the um, opportunity to go fully professional because of what he did at the 95 World Cup.
1: Former international opponents too have paid tribute to Lomu. The former Australia captain George Gregan says Lomu was a great man and he's struggling to come to terms with the loss after seeing him just a few weeks ago at the World Cup final. Another former Wallaby, Tim Horan, says rugby's lost one of the good guys. And children still talk about Lomu today, even though he hasn't played for the All Blacks for more than a decade. Jonah Lomu was survived by his wife Nadine and two sons. And he'll be remembered not only as an all-black legend, but as someone who transformed the game globally.
0: Hands up Tony Underwood. Lomu heading for four. And that's the most brilliant quartet of tries you'd ever wish to see.
1: Bob Oliphant was the first coach to put Jonah Lomu in a black jersey, and he's paid tribute to him often selected Lomu for the New Zealand under-17 side in 1991. He says he first saw Jonah play as a 15-year-old after being urged to go and see something very special.
0: I watched him play and he was playing at lock for counties and so um, I selected him at lock for the New Zealand team to play Australia later that year. Uh, He was only 15 at the time and this was the New Zealand under-17 team and it's rare for a kid a year younger to make the team, let alone... years younger. But anyway, he didn't. He was outstanding in that fixture. And I find it quite a coincidence that uh, Australia got back to us early the following year. We'd given them a bit of a toweling in the game that Jonah played in. And and Jonah was, of course, outstanding, wanting to change the age from under 17 to under 16. They felt that um, they had a better opportunity to perform at that level because of whatever reasons. And so the New Zealand Union agreed, and so in, in 1992 we had to pick an under-16 team instead of under-17. What the Aussies didn't know that Jonah was so young. <laughs> and so in 1992 he was in there again. And, of course, we got the same result. Did you get a response from Australia? They were very um, interested in having a look at the birth certificate. <laughs> did he play the same kind of rugby then that we saw later in his career? He did really. I mean... The great thing, I had two really young boys for two years in that same position. Uh, Jonah's partnering lock was Andrew Blowers, who went on to be an all-black himself. He actually was very athletic, and he was, of his age, the best lineout forward in the country. I, th- I find it quite amusing that a few years later, uh, I-, I was speaking with Ro- uh, Ross Cooper, who was uh, a county's coach and an all-black selector a little later on. And Ross said, Bob, how do you think Jonah would go as a winger? (laughs) I said, oh, oh, you've got to be joking. He's a lock, but he'd probably make a damn good number eight. (laughs) So that's how much I knew. And when you think about it, here he was, a very shy Tongan boy of only 15 years of age, round about September in 1991. And four years later, he was just setting the world alight as an all-black winger in 1995. It's unbelievable. What sort of a kid was he off the field in that team? Very respectful, very shy, very shy, quite diffident, but he always had a twinkle in his eye. And uh, the moment he pulled that black jersey on, it was like a metamorphosis. Do you think he made a difference to you know other kids of his age following that? Yeah, I think he did. Uh, there was certainly, within that age group, I, I had the side for about five or six years, and the legend of Jonah was already there when he was a kid amongst his peers and and those who were to follow him a year or two later. One of the things I I, I used to like to do was when we got together as a team initially, it was always a good idea to have the the boys sort of tell a joke or tell a story against themselves, just you know, for team morale, etc. Brad Fleming, who you may recall was a very, very good winger in the 90s, uh, played for the Junior All Blacks, I think, and, and had a few seasons, I think it was, with the Chiefs. Brad told a story about Jonah, and he said that The ball was coming along the Bay of Plenty back line towards him. He was playing on the wing, uh, Brad was, and he saw Jonah looming. So he called out to the fellow inside him, the centre, chip it. And unfortunately, in Brad's own words, the stupid clown thought I said flip it. (laughs) And so he received the ball and a rampaging tackling Jonah Longo at the same time. Knocked his confidence a bit. He was remembered in age group rugby for years, and he was sort of the... I suppose, the measuring stick for young players you know, coming through. If Jonah can do it, we can do it. And you've had a few years in age group rugby, but I guess they don't come along like
5: that very often.
0: No, no. I mean, Jeff Wilson was in the side the following year, obviously an outstanding player. They had Dougie Howlett. Um, there are a lot of outstanding players, but none of them had that magnetic superstar quality of Jonah. He, he was special. As, as Phil Kingsley Jones said, he's special. That's an understatement.
1: That's former New Zealand under-17 rugby coach Bob Oliphant talking to Checkpoint's Todd Nile. (laughs) The death of Jonah Lomu has not only shocked and saddened New Zealand, the impact has been felt around the world. The Irish Examiners front page was a poignant tribute to the rugby great. The cover was entirely black with a silver fern which had one leaf falling to the ground. Below it were the words Jonah Lomu 1975 to 2015. The newspaper's editor is Tim Vaughan, who explains why they decided to mark Lomu's death in that manner.
6: I was looking for a front-page image that would do justice to such an iconic figure. Um, but I would say, while I would I'd like to claim credit for for the image that we came up with, it, the full credit must go to our advertising agency. They're called Chemistry. While I was looking for an image for, for page one, they were in the process of doing a promotional ad uh, for our rugby coverage. And when I saw it, I said, that's it. That's what we're going to do. We're going to use that on page one. So it initially was, uh, it was designed as an ad to promote our rugby coverage of John Lumi's Looney's death. Uh, it was so magnificent that I decided to, uh, to use it on page one. It, it captured exactly what I wanted. It was respectful, sincere, uh, poignant, and... Uh, C- creatively outstanding
3: and you put him on the front page even though of course Jonah Lomu was not Irish is that a sense is that giving a sense of how important he was to the game
6: oh absolutely uh, he's, he, he's he's just such a, a global figure there was massive reaction uh, to his death in Ireland and you know it's, it's, people were talking it was like the death of somebody that they knew it was, it was really one of those moments that really takes you back. He was, you know, he was so young. Of course, we all knew that he was, you know, suffering from ill health for for so long. But you know, to to die suddenly like that at 40, uh and he was such a lovable man. I, I, I obviously didn't know him, but everything that's been written about him, you know, sincere, kind, giving, generous. You know, that's uh, that's what he seems to have been, and you know, uh, an exceptional figure um, for such a global superstar. So that's kind of rare nowadays
3: have you been kind of blown away as well though with the sort of reaction that you've had to that front page and how it's absolutely going like wildfire around social media
6: yeah i must say um i expected i expected a, a bit of reaction you know uh, i knew it would get a, it would blow people away because it blew me away when i saw it and um but i had no idea it was going to be so massive it's just gone Global, really. Um, we're getting huge reactions from New Zealand, from South America, from all over the world. It's just been uh, absolutely incredible. But I think that's, you know, that's because it was a really fantastic image, but I think it's down to the, the, the regard in which Jonah Loomer was held. That's why it's getting the reaction that it did. Uh, he was loved
1: all over the world. It was Tim Vaughan, the editor of The Irish Examiner, talking to Morning Report's Susie Ferguson. All Black Dan Carter's official introduction to French Club Racing 92 appears to have been postponed. Carter leaves for France next week and was due to be welcomed at the club ahead of their home match against fellow top 14 French side Toulouse on November the 28th. However, French reports suggest the match has now been postponed in the wake of last week's Paris attacks. Carter's contract with Racing 92 officially begins next month. He's got a book out. Dan Carter. My story, and earlier this week he spoke to 9 to Noon's Catherine Ryan who asked him whether the World Cup final win over Australia was the near perfect game.
7: Yeah, uh, you just kind of caught up in the moment and it's not until now that you get a chance to reflect about you know, how special it was um, and all I was wanting to do was just to do my little part to help this team win another World Cup and I'm just so thankful I'm able to sit here and and think that I was able to contribute um, to the team uh, winning back-to-back World Cups. So um, it all—it you're dead right. It, it all went uh, extremely well, and, and pleased with the way it, it all finished.
5: What is happening inside the mind when you are in that kind of performance zone? What are you seeing? How are the decisions happening? It's—it's
7: yeah, it's all about just backing your instincts, you know. In those later stages of a game, you know, you've got a plan, you've got a process that you've been working on all week and things change um, and things had changed. Australia effectively had all the momentum scoring 14 points in 10 minutes and bringing themselves back into the game. So for me and the leaders of the team it was all about um, getting that momentum back and there were a couple of points in in that game and the drop goal was one of them that just help change the momentum and you can just see the body language of the guys change immediately after moments like that And you know i was just happy to to help to contribute to to that and and once you've got the momentum back um you know the guys uh, they can just completely change and you know there's no way that that we're losing that match in um, that last 10 minutes
5: you write in the book that some games take time to reveal themselves i found that very insightful your craft is reading what is happening at a speed beyond most of us and then composing a beautiful response, really. Is that what it feels like when it's flowing?
7: Yeah, well and truly. And and it actually takes a lot of test matches and experience. It's probably something that is a lot easier for me to do now because I've played so many test matches. Whereas early in my career, you're just playing. You're not really reading a game or trying to influence a game or steer a team around the field. You're just you're just playing. Um, so with, with experience you know, you get that knowledge and, and you do, you, you, you're trying to sort of mastermind the, the perfect plan and, and use the guys around you to, to help you do that. Obviously you can't see everything so you need the guys around you uh, to be giving you information to effectively help you make the, the right decision.
5: What the book reveals is how the skills that all this depends on were drilled so young in your young childhood, the kicking and the tackling, the goal-kicking in particular, place-kicking in particular, and the tackling, this endless repetition. Your dad, in the end, after you were booting the ball over the roof so often um, that he was repairing it all the time, your dad, in the end, buying that special birthday present of some goalposts for a young guy. But it was the endless repetition through play that really laid the base here. You put more weight on that than anything that happened subsequently.
7: I know, and, and being where I am now and, and looking back, that's where it all started. And when I was back in, in that moment as a young sort of 8, nine, ten year old I never thought that all these hours and hours I'd spend on the backyard uh, by myself, with my friends, with my father, would, would make me the rugby player that I am today. I was just doing it for the pure love of it, uh, the enjoyment of getting out there and, and picking the ball and, and playing rugby. Um, but because I did that tirelessly, day after day, you know, hour after hour, that's I built up this, this skill base that's effectively made me into the rugby player I am today.
5: And that extra time, therefore, that you have to see and to decide quicker, I'm sure there's more innate physiological blessing to do with that but there's no doubt that drilling so young was a big factor of it and unlike others in sport who you know i think of some of the tennis players who write of hating what was imposed on them this was you doing it out of love what you do reveal is the psychological pressures it's not all dream come true stuff all the time you reveal a shyness a reluctance to be the person talking up in a group situation and you reveal times of real self-doubt how have you managed those
7: it's been a challenging, uh, you know, process throughout the years, and you know, I just wanted people to know that, you know, they often see, or you know, see the successes that a sports person has, but they don't understand the, the, the really tough times, you know, when you're, you're going through, uh, you know, from my example, injuries, you know, that just continue on and on, um, you know, for a couple of years on end and, and the amount of sort of mental battles you're having with yourself and the, the self-doubt and, you know, telling yourself whether you're good enough or whether you actually still have love for the game anymore. And and that's a, a really challenging, you know, side to to being a sports person, especially when you have, you know, a career that you know, lasts over a decade. It's, it's going to be a lot of ups and downs. And, you know, I think the, you know, some important things that I mentioned in the book is, you know, I've got some fantastic... Family and close friends that help me through those times and, and help keep me positive um, through those tough times, and, and actually using help like I used Kerry Evans and, and Gilbert and Oka that I talk about to to help me keep myself out of you know, that sort of those diversions of you know that really sort of negative thinking and just uh, concentrating on the facts and and what I can do to get better, and, and through having that great support team. Um, yeah, it's effectively helped me get me to to where I am today.
5: They would break things down sometimes. <clears throat> Gilbert and Oka would literally to giving you two hour schedule so that that was the focus of the day, not not the voice in the back of the head. The right foot kick you reveal in the book. Someone I can't remember who it was ran that one by you ages ago. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't you know? Wouldn't it be cool if you did a right foot uh, conversion for the All Blacks one day? So what happens in the last minute of this? game this dream game what what happened there
7: it was probably a little bit cheeky but um no so I grew up on the backyard you know kicking goals off my left foot my right foot so it's not like the first time I've kicked it I go off my right foot but at the start of the world cup Aaron Smith asked if I'd ever kicked a kick off my right foot and I told him when I was young and he goes Oh, imagine if we were ahead by more than a try in a world cup final and you know you got a chance to kick a goal, you know, your last kick in a, in a test match for the All Blacks off your right foot. And we kind of joked about it and laughed. And then with Bowden scoring that try and putting the game without doubt, Liam Messon, he ran on the tee, goes, kick it off your right. And I was like, and it brought me back to those childhood memories and also the conversation I had with Aaron Smith. And I was like, okay. So I kicked it off my right quickly and uh, ran back to half and didn't really think anything of it. And Obviously it got captured and um, made a bit of a story out of it, but that was just kind of brought me back to my childhood uh, in a way.
5: It's an interesting circle, isn't it, because you write also of the pressures, and it was actually high school rugby that first brought you to the really intense pressures and losing the innate love of the game, it brought you all the way back to where it started, that this was just about loving something and, and having fun with it. Will we ever see a team like this again, Dan? Was it a combination of people getting to pretty special time in their career, some pretty amazing and bold leadership and coaching leadership, and just a beautiful machine coming together? Is, have we witnessed something pretty special in rugby history?
7: Oh, I think yeah, but I don't think it's going to be the end of it. You know There's an amazing group of guys that are you know continuing on with this team. yes. I think six or seven guys are moving on but you got the same management team, you've still got Steve Hansen leading it and he's he's a visionary. He's um, he is the mastermind, um, you know, behind this team and with some of the vision that uh, you know, he gives for the team. Um, so there's a lot of people continue. The leadership group, yes, we're losing a few guys, but there's a great core of guys that are gonna continue so and the beauty is we've just got so much depth in New Zealand rugby that I think um, you know, it'll continue for, for years to come.
5: For you, this is a big change. Uh, anyone ending a career like this on the international stage, career like this, it's a big change and there will be many emotional responses. You're going to France. I'm sure there's some nervousness around that with what's happening there at the moment. But you also have a young family. Uh, and is that going to make a big difference, do you think, to how you make this transition? What are your thoughts as you leave New Zealand?
7: I think it's made a lot easier by having a family to, to support you. So a big part of the reason for moving on was to spend more time with them. So I'm actually really looking forward to that. I'm closing the chapter of, you know, my all-black rugby, and it's been a fantastic chapter, a fantastic career that I'm, you know, extremely proud and happy about. But I'm looking forward to to what's next in, in my life, and, um, you know, there's some pretty exciting times ahead. Uh, but in saying that, I think... You know, next year when the, the Allbacks uh, reassemble and having to sit there in front of my TV and watch them, I think it'll really sink in. And, and I think that'll be, you know, the tough moment uh, when it'll really realise that, you know, I'm no longer an Allback. I'm just uh, an ex-Allback and,
1: you know, it'll be tough not to be a part of it. That's Dan Carter talking to Catherine Ryan. And that brings us to the end of Extra Time for another week. Remember, if you wish to contact us, You can email us at sport at radioNZ.co.nz and you can also follow us on Twitter at RNZ Sport. On behalf of the Extra Time team, I'm Stephen Hewson. Bye for now.